I knew that was gonna happen. 32 and we're both recording in our parents house and we're like leave us alone welcome to the elite squad pod this is Paige Agrella and I'm Brittany Porter and it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving 2022 it is and I sound I sound sick but it's not COVID I tested myself you just have the cold that every I mean you're lucky to have just a cold everyone I talk to is like coughing up a lung I'm like and now I'm like super mean. People are like, I'm sick. I'm like, oh, don't get near me. Ew. Well, I like appreciate it so much more now because I'm just like, yeah, no, I like feel bad that I came back even with a slight cold. So I'm like, what if someone else gets it? That sucks. Like, listen to how I sound. I sound like I'm drowning. Well, this fucking thing is I have eight pages of notes. I don't know. There was a lot of like detail, but I'm like, watch, I'll read it back and be like, no, that wasn't important. Why did I write this down? There are some scenes I think we can just kind of bust through, but when we get there, we can see how it goes. It's because we want to be able to like focus in on the hilarious banter, but also the plot line in between that banter. So sometimes one has to give, it's unfortunately. True. It'll probably be the plot line. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is going to be season one, episode three, called dot dot dot, or just look like one dot dot dot. Original air date, October 4th. 1999. Happy 23rd birthday episode. Did you, so did you un- understand the title's like significance? I was thinking it was something to do with like, you know, modeling, like, or just look like one, like, or just look like a model. Did I miss it? No, no, no. You're basically right. Have you ever heard of the Barbizon modeling school? Yes. Okay. Barbizon, the commercials. Da, 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 Barbizon. It was something like that. I had never heard of it before. I, I have <gasps> heard it mentioned on another podcast, but their slogan is be a model or just look like one. Oh, uh, how very, very Y2K of them. And I took that from IMDb. That is not something I know. Um, The only other thing of note is that this is directed by Rick Rosenthal, who also directed Halloween 2 and Halloween Resurrection. So basically one of the better sequels and the absolute worst. And bad boys, but not the Will Smith one. Very dynamic career. Oh, I, I was like, wow, he is all over the place. I was going to look him up, actually. I was like, I think that's the guy who directed the Halloweeds, or at least a couple of them. I was right. Yeah, he's, I guess, relatively famous. I, I love when people are like, he's huge. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I'm like, I know like three directors and it's like Michael Bay. And then maybe Michael Bay two more times. Christopher Nolan, because everyone was like, Christopher Nolan, in the, you know, mid-2010s. Oh, also, special guest star, B.B. Newerth. I love her. She was great in this. Like, she was very, like, (laughs) she's more active, I think, than I've ever seen her in any of her other roles. Opening scene, we are outside of Roosevelt whatever hospital, and there's an ambulance attending to an old lady. They're taking her out of the ambulance, and her name (laughs) is Mrs. Johnson. and the nurse in charge of her asks her what she thinks the problem is. And Mrs. Johnson says she thinks it's the AIDS again and then a heart attack. She is so sweet. I love this old lady. And then the other the nurse goes, oh, do you also have Ebola again, Mrs. Johnson? Mrs. Johnson goes, no, your pills cleared that right up. I love her. She was absolutely adorable. It was kind of an interesting intro where I was just kind of like, aw. It was sort of wholesome because it's like, oh, this, these are our old friends. They're so nice to each other. Meanwhile, there is a like a red SUV idling in the in the I, am I calling it the hospital driveway? That is not what it's called. I mean, it kind of it kind of could be. I don't know what this hospital looks like, but a lot of them don't really have parking lots. So it's probably like 
So it's like the idling in the street, like where an ambulance should be coming. And the EMTs are like, this person shouldn't be there. We should go like talk to them. So the doctor starts to approach the vehicle. As soon as he starts to approach, the car drives away. He like cuts it out of there. And we see a body laying on the crosswalk. Bump, bump. Cut to inside the hospital. Elle and Liv are on the scene. And they see in the hospital bed that the girl, the victim that was outside, she's all beat up. She's got like bruising and swelling on her face. Um, the attending nurse says that her ID says that she is from Queens. Um, so then doctor, a doctor, they, they decide to give her a name, Dr. Locke enters. And she tells Ellen Liv that the girl was attacked um, and she had over 30 wounds to her body, her face, her breasts and her genitals. But she is more concerned with the fact that this girl appears to have overdosed on amphetamines. And as a bonus, she was sexually assaulted with a wooden object, which I don't know why Stabler was like, how can you tell? I was like, there were splinters, idiot. Right. She like holds up a vial of like splinters. I was like, maybe I should be the officer here. Sometimes they do that where I feel like they are too green at their jobs for our audience. Now, maybe... I think I'm too brilliant of a detective because I immediately like, oh, is she assaulted with a hammer and then sexually assaulted with the handle? Right. A wooden object? Like, what else? Like, I know. You just I have like, a wooden object? Most likely it's the same wooden object and most hammers are wooden. I mean, well, I can't say that for, for a fact, but it's usually the case. So while these two are fucking around and you and I are solving this case, is this when we, <laughs> I think we cut to the, they cut to the theme song? Da, 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 da. Yes, we got to the theme song, and then it's back at the station, and we have the usual crowd. So it's Craigan, Jeffries, Munch, Ellen, Liv, and Cassidy. And Craigan says the victim's name is Teresa Burgess. Ter- I said Teresa, and I meant Teresa Burgess. Um, and she's 16 years old and a model. But it's like, how did they know she was like a model? They have her headshot just- again. I mean, this girl's a model, so it made a little more sense for her to have a headshot. Actually, where the- how'd they get it so fast? I'm sorry. I'm well. They latently kind of implied that she was like it was like she was locally famous or something because they mentioned it a couple times they're like oh she was on a billboard and i'm like so people kind of knew who she was i guess she appeared to be both locally famous but also struggling she was dumped at 3 a.m and jeffries comes out of the gate stating that it must have been someone who knew her because of how personal the attack was like very close the sexual assault and then dumping them at the hospital I thought this was very insightful, and the detectives are immediately like, yeah, well, let us know when you know the name of the guy. And I was like, she's trying to fucking help. Yeah, Munch immediately launches into, she says something very helpful, and I think uh, historically accurate if we look back at cases. And Munch goes, oh, great. Maybe you can just give us his name. We could all go home early. And she looks at him, and I took a picture of it, and I've got to text it to you before, <laughs> but with this face. And it's literally like, like, like she can't imagine he could be any more. This this person, a.k.a. this bitch. So Jeffries rolls her eyes as she continues. She says face, breasts, genitals. That says, bitch, I'm going to erase you. So classic Jeffries delivering a line that was a lot. <laughs> so um, the father is now at the hospital. Craigan advises that they go meet with him, but be sympathetic, not too sympathetic, which I feel like Elliot blows immediately. Immediately. And they said that. Uh, you know, on, on the way there, they say that Teresa's day book, the, her last appointment was a photo shoot at 7th Avenue and 27th Street. There was 12 other people at the shoot that they're going to interview. So as they're dismissing everybody, Craig, it says, who's in court today? And Jeffries goes, me. And Munch says, oh, right. 
Jeffries verse comic book man. A rape man. No, he said rape man. Now, I thought he was being a dick. Same. I was like. I thought he was joking. I was like, of all the disrespectful, disgusting ways to talk about. And then later we find out, no, rape man is real and we'll be talking about that. But nonetheless, Jeffrey stares at Munch like once again, like she just can't fucking believe this. And she just like, she's like, I could have gone to grad school or I could have come here and I came here. She could have gone and been a model and not have had to deal with him. So they cut to the hospital. Paige, just for you, I have clocked that it is Tuesday, September 28th, because you often want to know how long these cases are taking. So I just wanted to let you know, today's Tuesday. (laughs) I appreciate it. So we meet Teresa's father and he does not seem upset enough to me. He's very much like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My daughter was attacked. I was like, sir. Yeah. He gave off a creepy vibe. And he was very like he was in between. He was like, my beautiful daughter. But it was like it was like emotion, but not <laughs> but not, you know. And then he calls her. He goes, well, you know, Jasmine. And they're like, Jasmine. And at first I was so confused. I was like, wait, so is her name Jasmine or is her name Teresa? But apparently they changed her name from Teresa to Jasmine. And then he called it a trademark. And I'm like, or a stage name. Yeah, I don't think yeah. you could trademark the name Jasmine. So he's he's kind of a dweeb. Stabler kind of starts in with some light flack about like, okay, so she was out until 3 a.m. and you, you didn't check in. And uh, the father goes, Jasmine was always old for her age, which I. <clears throat> yeah, she's 16. Well, Jasmine was always old for her age. It's like, why? So he tells them that he is the one who dropped her out off for the shoot. And then he's all like, yeah, in retrospect, I shouldn't have let her stay out that late. It's like, yeah, idiot. Because he dropped her off at the shoot at 6 p.m. And then he didn't hear from her again at all, period. So she, her body was found at 3 a.m., which means that he just didn't hear from his 16-year-old daughter for, for like almost a 12-hour period. And I thought that was a weird time to start a shoot, by the way. I don't know about editorial, but like 6 p.m. feels really late to be like starting people. There's all these labor laws, but then again, not in this universe, maybe, I guess. Maybe not in the 90s? I don't know. That's true. What am I talking about? We just we just started like adhering to them. I mean, also, maybe they just don't care. I don't know. (laughs) So the father says and in passing, he goes, I thought I could trust her. And they're like, who? And he says, Nina Laszlo. And that is Jasmine slash Teresa's modeling agent. Yeah, yeah, I think at the end here, I wrote that I don't think the dad did anything weird to the daughter, but he's just weird in general. He is just a skis. Yeah, skeezy dad, but probably not guilty. So again, detectives page. I know this is why we're not the detectives, because we would have rolled up in Ben. It's always the dad, even when it's not the dad. Even when it's not the dad. (laughs) They're like, ladies, you are the ones who were defending the dad from the last episode. I'm like, he fooled us all. He was adorable. (laughs) Dun dun. Dun, dun. (laughs) I don't know. That amuses me every time. (laughs) Well, because it's a good way to like recenter. Yeah, it's like, like, all right. So enter the Laszlo agency. Enter BB Newworth. I love her. She's wearing pink eyeshadow. Respect. So I was like, oh, I love BB Newworth. And then I said to myself, what do I know her from? It's, mo- <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly how to lose a guy in 10 days. Where she played another really chic, amazing advertising executive. Yes. Now she's also um, goes on to be the lead in Law and Order Trial by Jury. Which apparently you can't watch anymore, so fuck me. Um, Interesting. And she's also famous for being Frasier's wife on Cheers and Frasier. 
Yes. So that's how I know her because I became really into, became, I got really into Cheers like when Nick at Night was on. And then subsequently Frasier. So that's how I know her. But you're right. I always forget that she was in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days because like her entire aura is so different in that movie. She's like, I mean, she's like a dick fashion lady, but she's like a nice, fun dick fashion lady. Not so much here. (laughs) No, no. She's just a plain dick fashion lady. She is brusque as soon as they meet her. She lets them know that Jasmine was her lead, which I assume means like her, her like main model. So they're like, uh past tense was and she's like oh yeah sorry (laughs) yeah she literally goes oh yeah sorry about that they ask her who is chaperoning the set she's like "Mm, what a chaperone what she got really weird about that question like she almost made it sound like it's like when you text somebody and like one letter in a word is off and they're like "Uh, what do you mean like she got very weirdly flustered What are you even talking about? The photographer, I guess. Chaperone. I agent 150 girls. They ask her about the amphetamines. She claims no knowledge. And then she just starts busying herself at her desk. She puts on like a little headset. Yeah, she put on like a telemarketing headset. That kind of made her look less official. It really did. They ask her if she at all went to the set during on Monday. And she says that she visited the set around 10. And she says that. Carlo Parisi would have been in charge of the set once she left, but she's pretty aloof. And so Elle asks her if they're boring her and she goes, "Uh, yeah, uh, actually, this is a giant business and I help them with their careers. And then Elle says, do you help them into the hospital, too? I'm surprised she had like a not as weird of a reaction to that. She kind of like rolled her eyes. She's like, all right, whatever. Bye, guys. Time to go on talk on my headset. And then on the way out, Liv goes, Nina, what kind of car do you drive? And Nina says, a white Acura. It's like, oh, okay, fine. I like how they just like take that. They're like, okay, we don't have to see it or anything. They're like, fine. She doesn't even ask. She's not even like, why? She's like, yeah, white Acura. Bye. She's like, they're like walking out the door. Dun, dun. So we're at the shipyard for the photo shoot uh, for Carlo Parisi. He's there and he's shooting a bunch of male and female models in sailor garb. Looks pretty stupid. So Ellen Liv are like, hey, Carlo Parisi. And he's like, oh, what? He also has no time for them. This is like the second person in a row who's like, what? No. Bye. They're like, can you account for Jasmine's whereabouts the night on Monday night? And he goes, good luck. Do you want to sound guilty or not? I know. Honestly, I always think about what a bootlicker I am when like this kind of thing happens. Because <laughs> the cop showed up at my work and I did it. No, like... Or not, I'd be like, oh, what can I help you? Oh my gosh, I'll get you all the information you need. No, same. Like, would you like to be in the photo shoot? Like something, like, what can I get you? A blanket? You know, and these guys are just like, God, can I fucking help you? It's like, uh, yeah, somebody that you know is dead or almost dead. No one give. he does not give two fucks that Teresa's in the hospital. Uh, so he says that Jasmine's dad dropped her off around 6 p.m., which checks out with what other people have been saying, and the shoot wrapped around 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., but he doesn't know when Jasmine left. It's like, for again, first of all, 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. is an absurd amount of time to be keeping people for a fucking photo shoot, and it better have been night-themed. He claims there was too much energy on the shoot for him to keep track of people. I was like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, he's like, it's just so, oh, it's also like he's either Welsh or Australian. So when we imitate him, it will be either Welsh or Australian. We're not quite sure. 
We're not sure. He's like, it's just electric. There's a buzz on the shoot, and it just it gets all blurry. And then <laughs> <laughs> Elliot goes, is it just from the shoot energy, or is it from something else? And Carla goes, ugh, please. I've been, I've been sober for 17 months, except for cappuccinos. It's like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, you think you're funny? And why are you fucking screaming at the cops as soon as they walk up to I know, you? He's like, that yeah, what? I haven't been doing anything. Um, they asked Jas- Jasmine had any friends from the set uh, that they could talk to. And once again, Carla says he has no clue about anything because he's a fucking artist. He doesn't know nothing about nothing. And then this next thing that happened, I thought was kind of inappropriate. Olivia whips around, sees this like woman who's kind of like hiding in the background wearing sunglasses. And she's like, hey, do I know you? And the woman's like, well, maybe I used to be. I used to be very famous. I used to do lots of modeling. And Olivia's like, no, you were in the Ricky Blaine case. And I was like, I... I said the same thing in my notes. I was like, so she goes, oh, well, uh, I was a model in, you know, in my younger years. And Olivia literally two seconds after goes, you testified against Ricky Blaine in the Ricky Blaine case, the measuring man. And she's like, you have a good memory. Yelling. <laughs> she she's did. She got excited. She's not like, it's like she met Meryl Streep. She's not like, excuse me, um, are you making that case? She's like, hey, you testified against Ricky Blaine. And it's like, and when you find out who Ricky Blaine is and they give you a little overview, he was called the measuring man. And his M.O. was he was a photographer and he would, I, I'm assuming lie, because I don't know any photographer who needs to measure anybody. That's not like their thing. But he would say, I need to get your measurements before the shoot. And then he would get handsy with them and subsequently assault and then beat the crap out of them. So it's kind of crazy that Olivia just decided to be like, hey, were you raped by Ricky Blaine? Yeah, very inappropriate. Um, Ricky Blaine is clearly a ripoff of the Boston Strangler's early project as the measuring man. Um, where he would go around to the homes of college students, pose as a modeling scout, saying he was looking for new models, asked to take their measurements, and then be handsy. I, like, had forgotten all about this part of him, but it said that he would get, he would be crudely fondling them. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he didn't, Albert DeSalvo, that is, he didn't rape those initial victims, he assaulted them, obviously. So Stabler, I don't know where this, like, bright-eyed naive stabler comes from he did this last episode he does it again he's like where are the parents aren't you a police officer he literally looks up and kind of like over their heads and goes where are the parents where are the teachers meanwhile his poor wife is home trying to parent his four ungrateful brat children and he's like where are the parents they're out working like you are probably this is not in defense of the parents because it is their fault, but I'm just kind of like, really, pot, kettle? Um, I don't think, do they state this woman's name here? It's Deborah Luttrell, the lady with the sunglasses. I was going to say, I don't think they say it here. I had to look it up midway through the episode. I was like, wait, who is this lady? Um, so I don't think they say like, no, Liv just goes, hey, you testified against Ricky Blaine. Yeah, like, no, we don't get to know her name. Rude as fuck. Yeah, a victim, a nameless victim, according to Olivia. business, Olivia. But anyway. Olivia, we don't get mad at you for much. Poor Deborah, who did not want to talk about the Ricky Blaine case, is like, yeah, ho-hum, that happens to models. All right. You know that somebody who used to be a model wants to be recognized for being a model, not for being a rape victim. I know. (laughs) She's trying to live her life and they're screaming at her. Liv goes, well, don't worry. He's, um, I forget what jail it was. He's in Attica. He's in jail. And Deborah says, actually, he just got out, which is, is so Law & Order SVU. Just conveniently, he got out like two days ago. And she says that the victim's services sent her a letter, like letting her know. And then 20 cents. Thanks, state of New York. I don't know if it was the state of New York, but. 
I think it, well, yeah, I think probably. So yeah, thanks, State of New York. Rude. Well, you all know where this is heading. We're going to talk to Ricky Blaine. <laughs> Off we go to Ricky Blaine's new job at an auto shop. They walk up to him and go, Ricky Blaine. And then he's Elliot sees a hammer on his like tool belt and just goes, I'll be taking that. <laughs> just takes this man's hammer. And Ricky Blaine is just like, oh, I'm just trying to make an honest living as a me- He does not have this accent, but I'm just trying to make an honest living as a mechanic now. And they're like, mm, you've been measuring anybody, Ricky? He says, you can ask my PO. I haven't touched a piece of tape in years. And I'm like, all right. I was like, the tape wasn't the problem, Ricky. It was touching the girls, you idiot. Now, it does appear that per his parole, he's not allowed to have measuring tape, which I think is kind of funny. That's kind of hilarious. I guess it's like, you know, indicative. I guess he would be if somebody had like an issue with what if someone had an issue with strangling folks? Would you be like, now, don't you dare use those hands? I know they just cut your hands off, send you back out into the world. So then they start asking him about Teresa's assault and he is aware of this, the assault, which I'm like, how? Mm. Is, mm. is there just. He said he heard about it. Um, I'm guessing through the news. And he said, oh, yeah. He goes, is this about that creamy little sweetie who got attacked? Her Kmart underwear ads were primo monkey spank feel. Back to jail. I know. I was like, arrest this man. Also arrest the writers for molesting Uh, my ears with that nonsense. Arrest Rick Rosenthal for sitting there directing this episode, hearing that line and saying to himself, we'll send it to print. He's like, that's that's pretty good. So they're like, yeah, did you did you do it? He's like, no, I was watching football. So then Liv goes, I was impressed by this because as you know, I'd never be able to do this. She goes, oh yeah, who is playing? Ricky goes, Jets versus Steelers. Safe bet. The Jets are always kind of playing, I guess. And Liv goes, wrong. Cowboys 49ers. Now, I guess that must have been Monday night football because this is all happening on Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. That was Monday night football. And so Ricky, for some reason... After this starts to lose it a little, starts to unravel. And he, like every man in every episode so far, looks at Liv and goes, Hey, you know, you've got really good bone structure. I still know a pe- couple people in the business. And then he, like, does that thing where he slides his palm next to her cheekbone. And then they fuck him up. They immediately start police brutalitying him. And I can't even blame them because he did start to touch her. So I'm like, oh, fuck it. Yeah, hit this guy. He's an asshole. Yeah, go ahead and hit him. That was so crazy. It's like, why do people in this universe think that they could do that to cops? I know. It's weird. It's weird. They basically be- rough him up a little bit. And they're like, if your alibi's not right, we'll be back. And Ricky Blaine's just on the ground like, okay. Sorry. <laughs> he literally, he goes, I was just trying to help. And then again, of course, because I'm an idiot, I'm like, oh, they're like, no, Paige. <laughs> no, that's Ricky Blaine. That's Ricky Blaine, based on Albert DeSalvo, apparently. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. So back at the station, Munch says that they spent the day uh, around a bunch of beautiful women because they were investigating the, they, they went to go interview, he and Cassidy went to go interview the other models from the shoot on Monday where Jasmine had been. So he goes on to say that Jasmine was kicked out of the photo shoot around midnight on Monday uh, for failing her weigh-in. So if you remember, Carlos and I believe Deborah both said they had no clue why Jasmine left or where she went, whatever. Um, so it was because Jasmine was 5'7 and 110 pounds. So Carlo kicked her out of the shoot until she could come back wearing, weighing eight pounds less. Which I was like, I don't think you can be 5'7 and weigh 102 pounds. I really don't think you could be that. I. 140 pounds on someone who's 5'7 looks like 108 pounds to me. Yeah, so Carlo can go suck eggs. 
So Liv is incredulous. And she's like, five, seven and 110 pounds is too fat. It's like, yes, this is the 90s. Where have you been? You and me are just like, yeah, Olivia. We, yeah. we know. Um, so Munch says Jasmine hung around the shoot for a little while longer after they kicked her out. She's made some, quote, weepy phone calls. OK, Munch. And then she went into Carlo's private office. When she came out, she was crying and insulting him. So Carlo told her to get the fuck off the set, which I think he already told her to get the fuck off the set for being fat. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like he just like really had it then. So Elle asks if there were any drugs on the shoot and Cassie says that the other models don't remember. So they're all using. So they're all using, obviously. Uh, Jasmine also left the set with a quote unquote girlfriend named Vanessa Wong. So Elliot, for no reason that I could see, asks what type of girlfriend it is. And Munch says... Well, they're not Katie Lang fans, if that's what you mean. Why wouldn't you just assume I'm a Katie Lang fan. I know. Right. That was annoying. Anyway. Dun dun. They go to Vanessa's apartment. I have questions as to why she has an apartment if she's underage. I was thinking she lived in like model housing. They sometimes do that where they put a bunch of models together. But you're right. She was underage. They didn't say how old Teresa was. Vanessa was. They didn't. I just assumed underage because it's they heavily implied that probably most girls working for Nina right. are. And on average, what we find out more about, quote unquote, their friendship, and I only say that because I'm making it sound more dramatic than it is. I don't think that if I were above, if I were over 16, I would be doing that with a 16 year old. So I, I think you're right. I think she was supposed to be underage. As they're walking up upon Teresa or Teresa, Vanessa's uh, apartment, they see our old friends, Bloody Briscoe and Edward Green from Yay! Law and Order Proper. Jerry Orbach and Jesse L. Martin, who I cannot see without thinking of Rent and his version of I'll Cover You Reprise lives rent free oh. in my brain. Live in my house. Oh my gosh. So good. Also, this is the first Rent actor we're going to meet and there's a lot. And every time we see one, I'm going to announce it proudly. And then, as we know, Jerry Orbach is the man who famously tried to put baby in a corner and failed. And R.I.P., Jerry. R.I.P. Oh, yeah, he is dead. Shit. Yeah, for a while, but, you know. But anyway, they open the door. They're like, oh, what do you get? Um, Briscoe and Stabler appear to know each other. But it sounds like he doesn't know Detective Green and that no one knows Olivia because she is his new partner. Yes. So they introduce each other and they're like, what do you, you know? guys doing around here and there's some jokes about the good food on Mott Street true and then they're like what are you doing here Olivia and Elliot and Olivia and Elliot say they're looking for Teresa Wong oh my god I'm gonna keep doing that I got Vanessa Wong. a lot too because they gave them it's it's just like Steven Stefan Panacek Tanzik blah 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 because they're giving them us at the end of their names anyway <laughs> so they're looking for Vanessa Wong and uh, Green gets a stoic look on his face and says he just missed her which again bad joke um, and that they pulled her out of a dumpster earlier that morning. So Vanessa Wong, Jasmine's friend who left the shoot with her and potentially the only witness to what happened to Jasmine, is dead herself. Elliot goes, he just kind of looks at them, he goes, early morning with a claw hammer. And they're like, you've been reading our notes? And, and Liv goes, only if you've been reading ours. And I'm like, guys, again, I murder investigation. Can we just talk like normal people? I, know, I was like, that wasn't even a good joke. And they were looking worried while they said it. Like, they were, like, making the jokes, but they're like, you've been reading our notes. Have you been reading ours? So, I read today that Dick Wolf hired a, um, more female writers for Law & Order SVU. This is an aside. Um, 
just to kind of capture a more wide How progressive. Yes. And then one of the female writers was like, we had a lot of bad writers season one and we fired them for season two. So I think there's just there's some bad writing here. And I feel like we're validated. I'm glad you said that because I remember the first episode I was commenting a lot on the bad writing. I felt it was bad, but then I was like, Paige, you're not a writer. You're not even a human. No, I'm kidding. But just <laughs> <laughs> like, who are you to judge these famous NBC writers? But I'm glad that apparently uh, we were right again as smart people. So dun dun, dun we're dun. at the Stabler house for breakfast. Um, the Stablers are all around the table. It's chaotic and adorable. They're such an American family. And Maureen's dumbass is just sitting there. Not only only eating yogurt, which isn't that weird. Elliot kind of made too big of a deal about that, in my opinion. But she's eating it, like, dipping the tip of the spoon into the yogurt and then just, like, kind of licking the tip of the spoon. So that I have an issue with. If you don't want to look like you have an eating disorder, don't do that. So Stabler, like, notices what she's doing and starts to try to push some of his breakfast on her plate. And I remember what it's like being a teenager and I still wanted to slap Maureen's braces clad mouth because she's like that is all saturated fat i'm not going to eat that i was never that teenager me either well i was like wait do we have more of the saturated they had like a whole plate of bacon and sausage too how much time do you have in the morning kath i don't think i think kathy's a stay-at-home mom this is her job which that would get so boring sure it's boring (laughs) i mean it would be kind of nice but then it's like you're just talking to maureen Maureen, i know and, and I can't imagine Dickie Stabler has anything intelligent to say, so no wonder she's so excited about Manicotti Night later. Dickie Stabler, uh, he's like a menace to plumbing, so. And turtles. So Elle gets all frustrated. He pulls Kathy to his side. <laughs> Maureen, I will say justice for Maureen accurately pointing out, uh, you don't have to go like right over there <laughs> to talk about me. <laughs> Which is exactly what he is doing. And he literally was like, Kathy, can I come see you in the other room? And it's like, by the sink. So he goes, how long has this been going on? And Kathy goes, oh, the Anorexian Training Act? Couple weeks. And Elliot's like, what? Why? And then Kathy brings up how he's not home. And that has, to me, nothing to do with it. I will say, I I am starting the season as a bit of a Kathy sympathizer. And I know I get to a point where I dislike her. But here I was just like, I felt like it was the annoying thing. Like, where you're home all the time and you notice something. Mm. And then, like, weeks later, your p- partner is like, what's up with this? And I'm like, where the fuck have you been? <laughs> No, you're right. That's Actually, okay. Me the whole time. I'm a little hard on her. But I will say, shouldn't have married a cop. Or when your husband said that he was going to go into cophood, should have said, hey, no, I actually want you to be a secretary so you can work nine to five and help me with these fucking kids that are ruining the plumbing and starving themselves. And our lives. So Stabler in his infinite wisdom goes to sit down b- back with Maureen and goes, can I talk to you about nutrition? And she's just like, oh, No. Which, once again, Justice or Maureen Stabler, because I'm like, yeah, idiot. No, yeah, no, that was great. She was looked at it like, oh, no. <laughs> dun, dun. So Green and Briscoe are visiting the station. Jeffries is sitting in her chair backwards, which I think she's always doing. Waiting for Munch to say some dumb shit. Which he will. But they decide to go over the timeline. And the timeline is... And I think I wrote this down wrong, but I think they left between 11 and 12 and they were found dead at three. Is that right? Yep. So, yeah, they got they arrived at the set at six, left between 11 and 12, and then they were both found dead. Well, 
Jasmine was found Monday. I mean, obviously, uh, Teresa was found dead, like, I guess, Tuesday. But they were all both found at the same time. Why was Jasmine there so long if she failed the weigh-in? I think because she just stuck around. She called her mom, and then she called... The, I think this is actually where they find that out. They do discuss her phone records, but if they got there at 6 and they left between 11 and 12, they were there for 5 to 6 hours. Not do, I mean, I know they were making phone calls and kind of in and out, as they discussed, but they're there for 6 hours. And did Vanessa fail the photo shoot? Is she one of the models? I have questions, and they do not have my answers. Well, so it sounds like... Vanessa. So after... Jasmine was told she couldn't model. It sounds like she hung around the shoot. She called her mom, Synecdoche. I'm not even going to bother trying to say the name of that town, but that's where her mom lives. Synecdoche. So she called her a couple times, and then she called an apartment on the Upper East Side, or the Upper West Side, uh, Upper West Side a couple times, too, before she ended up. But I don't think that that phone number didn't answer her. Her mom didn't. She talked to her mom for a little while, but then the number that she kept calling on the Upper West Side didn't pick up any of the time she called. So then after she made those phone calls, I think it's when she went in to start screaming, giving Carlo Parisi the business. And so then after he kicked her out there, she and Vanessa left. So they ask who the person was she called on the Upper West Side. And apparently it was somebody named Hamilton Trill. And of course, Munch knows who the fuck that is because it's like some Hunter S. Thompson type writer. I thought it was Hampton. Is that his? I thought his first oh, name was right. Hampton Oh, you're right. You're right. No, you're right. It's Hampton Trill. I said Hamilton, didn't I? He's some literary dude, bro. And don't worry, we are going to meet him. Just not right away. Munch calls him. He says he thinks he's the Emil Zolo of pre-millennial Manhattan. So shout out to the millennials. We don't want anything to do with him. So Craig says, well, since you know this guy so well, Munch, you and Cassidy can go interview Hampton Trill. And then he sends Elle and Liv to the hospital to talk to Jasmine's mother. There is also a throwaway line in this scene that Ricky Blaine's alibi did check out. Oh, yeah. So Ricky Blaine is... Unfortunately, I will not get to say Ricky Blaine again. Dun, dun. So we're at the hospital, back at Roosevelt Hospital. Ellen and Liv go into Jasmine's room and they see her mother, Sue Burgess, who's looking distraught. Mars distraught that her stupid ex-husband did. And we find out that Sue says that Jasmine isn't doing well. Elliot asks, did she call you the night of? And she says, yes, Carlo Parisi said some awful things to her and that Jasmine was thinking about quitting the business entirely. Her mom also goes on to say that all this modeling business started when Jasmine was 13 and she won like some prize money in a Miss Synecdoche contest. And then Jasmine's dad basically kind of like won off and decided that she was going to become a professional model after that. Yes, he goes straight into being a huge stage parent does not hold down any job so basically it falls on the mom to hold two jobs so that when they do get divorced unfortunately she doesn't get custody because she's never home which is so fucked up that was like a catch-22 she had to have the two jobs to support them (laughs) and then they took her daughter for it now it's interesting to me they didn't say whether or not that's what jasmine would have preferred but that's a good point because she might have wanted to be a model we never really get that far dun dun <laughs> dun dun so now we have one of those seeds that we both are growing tired of three episodes in uh it's jeffrey's in court a 13 year old boy raped a nameless victim in his home and jeffrey's subsequently arrested the father who's also at the defendant's table on the grounds of it was like irresponsible the irresponsible parenting pedile code was kind of how it sounded 
Um, and her argument was that the household, it fostered rape culture and it, it fostered an attitude that rape was okay. So his defense attorney, the father's defense attorney goes, did you find Playboy? Did you find Maxim? Did you find Penthouse? Did you find pornography? You found a comic book. And she says it kind of like, ha, this guy finding a comic book and arresting a poor man because of it. Which I don't know why she's so like cocky at this point, because she has to know that the defense attorney is going to redirect and they're going to see the comic book. And it's not just a comic book. No. Which is exactly what happens. The um, ADA gets up. And this is an ADA we don't know. I think she's just a temp for Abby Carmichael is probably on vacation somewhere or dealing with a homicide in on the other side of New York City. She says, Detective Jeffries, is this the comic book in question? And Jeffries goes, yes, it is. And apparently the comic book was the aptly titled Rape Man. Why would the defense attorney... She kind of made it sound like she's like, oh, you found Superman. You found some comic books. And it's called Rape Man. And I've got bad news. This is based on something real. All right. From the Rape Man Wikipedia page. The Rape Man is this Japanese satirical black comedy manga series. It is credited as being created and written by Keiko Isaki and illustrated by Shintaro Miyawaki. It ran from 1985 to 1992 and was discontinued after 13 volumes. The main character, Keisuke Iwasaki, is a handsome and very muscular teacher by day and dispenses a surreal and perverted brand of justice at night as the rape man under the business Rape Man Services, which is co-run with his uncle, a former surgeon. I don't know why. The business motto is righting wrongs through penetration. Clients call on the rape man to handle cases such as the revenge of a jilted lover, forming parental bonds through a traumatic crisis, making disruptive coworkers more docile, and other things of that nature. When engaged in his night trade, the rape man wears a black leather ski mask shaped like the head of a penis, but no trousers or underwear. In the middle of a rape, if the woman, flash girl, becomes unresponsive or expresses enjoyment, he uses special techniques such as M69 screwdriver or infinite loop to apply more pain to the victim. Despite regretting some of the contracts he fulfills, he always completes the task. Rabbit hole number one. To make disgruntled co-workers more docile? Mm-hmm. So that was a Wikipedia page I read today. Oh, and if they if they decide midway, they're like, oh, I actually like this. He makes he just, it painful. He makes it... That, so that was a real I, comic. I, I heard of the video game Rape Lay before. Yes. So I guess I didn't think to even look into this. That's insane. They say black comedy. I don't see how that could be funny. No. Like, who would think that was funny that you, that didn't need to be arrested? I will say I did not take the next step. I didn't look up any of those. That did not. Uh, honestly, that didn't even occur to me. And I'm not really interested. But like. No. Ew. I, I like how the costume is just as ridiculous as it could be. That's the only comedy part is that he's wearing a penis head and walking around without pants on. I, I did see like a cover. So that's like the most I saw. And I was just like, oh, so that's real. Dun dun. We are now at the apartment of <laughs> I did write Hamilton here. Hampton Trill. The penthouse apartment. That thing's up. Yeah. Hudson Place overlooking the Hudson River, so I can confirm. Very nice area. 
So he's a dick because he has a really nice apartment, obviously, and I hate him for it. And he like wears a robe, like not like a cool robe. He has like a, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. He looks like an idiot, though. Yeah, it's like a male kimono or something. I think that's why it put me off. I was like, Hampton Trill would have a male kimono. And he comes out pretty cocky. And again, he's apparently supposed to be kind of like a Hunter S. Thompson type. So Munch and Cassidy ask him what was going on Monday night. And he said that he was having a book release party for his new book. And Munch apparently has read it. And he says that it's a blatant ripoff of Joan Didion. I know. I was like, oh, I'm glad the intellectuals can talk. So I'm like, I know the names. They ask him what Jasmine might have been doing there at his book release party. And he said she showed up and she was kind of a mess, but he was too. And it's implied that she was probably there to get drugs, amphetamines, as it were, because Hampton lives around a bunch of doctors on the second and third floor, and they just show up to his parties because he's always got girls there. And Hampton met her originally in the building elevator because she was, um, she had an appointment. I had questions about this, too. Actually, now that you say that, I think I maybe know what's going on. But he does say that they had lunch a few times where I'm like... Ew, don't have lunch with a 16-year-old. Well, because they tie it in. We are getting there, but they tie it in to, like, who she might have had an appointment with, I guess. Yes. But then it does get a little confusing. So as they go to leave, Munch, he asks Munch another opinion on his writing, and Munch says that he's terrible and it breaks his heart. And I feel like you just, it's like he doesn't know. It's like you haven't heard Munch go on a conspiracy theory rant. You don't need that man's opinion. He took that insult very well. I was like, this like officer just shows up when you're hungover and like trying to deal with your day and then insults your work. He was pr- I thought he was a pretty good sport about it. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Back to Carlo. Carlo Parisi's photo shoot. Another one. So he's directing a bunch of probably underage girls laying in white lingerie on a bed. And he's saying, be sexy, be sexy, be naughty. Deborah is still wearing her sunglasses, so now we know that's going to come up later. Yeah, and I'm surprised no one's asked about it. Like, I guess it's rude to ask, but she's clearly not blind, but they're not really fashion sunglasses. Like, I know they're supposed to be, but, like, it looks like she's hiding something. Yes. If, if that was supposed to be discreet, it fails. They walk up to Deborah and they let her know that Vanessa Wong has died. And Deborah looks really shocked, really disturbed. She runs up to Carlo, who one look at Liv and Elle and goes, oh, God, what now? So they're here to ask him about the weigh-in debacle. I just want to make a note that before he walks over to talk to them, he says to the models on the bed, don't sweat. I heard that. I was like, oh. Ew. (laughs) I wish that was all it took to tell me not to sweat. Like, I wish you could just tell me don't do it and I would just not do it. Carlo is haughty with Ellen Liv and he asked them um, and they ask him why Vanessa and Jasmine left for real. So Carlo says Vanessa was mad at him for dismissing Jasmine and she left too. Uh, Deborah interjects that Vanessa and Jasmine were going to go score, as she says. She just goes, they were going to score. And Carlo claims that he didn't say anything to the detectives because he wanted to protect their parents. Like he didn't want their parents to know. But they knew that it was at Hampton Trill's apartment. Which is kind of interesting. I'm like, how did you guys know that it was Hampton Trill's apartment? I guess it's just like the New York elite run in the same circles. But like, how do you know that? Right. Like, or, unless you're scoring too. Is, so, is that a dun, dun. Say, is that a dun, dun? That was a very short scene. Yeah, it was a short scene. I mean, they said, again, they said other shit, but it was like, you know, like the quippy back and forth of it all. Dun, 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 at dun. the station. 
Much, Munch has some snapshots of the security footage from Hampton Trill's building, and they show Jasmine entering the building around 1.22 a.m. Cassidy says that they're, the first two floors are all doctors, and that's how, you know, again, that's how Jasmine met Hamilton in the first place. Uh, and they have a whole list of the doctors for that they had to Olivia. So they head to some sort of licensing office? What? It, where? I called it a licensing office. I am so sorry. I don't know where they were. No, it said licensing office. Oh, okay. So this is just some place that has a database of doctors writing prescriptions. So they find out that this Dr. Deke O'Connor wrote prescriptions for both Teresa, Vanessa, and he has a record. He was writing out um, prescriptions for amphetamines to like a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of people. And you're right. He has a record. Um, he assaulted somebody in 1991 and put them in the hospital and then had a DUI in 1994. So they're like, great, we're we're going to follow up this guy. So they head to dun, dun, NYU Downtown Hospital on 172 William Street. And it's Wednesday still. Still Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Liv and Elliot are on the roof and they find a doctor in a white coat with a man in a wheelchair and the man in the wheelchair has a neck brace and they're both just kind of staring out into the distance. So Liv addresses the man in the white coat as Dr. O'Connor and that guy turns around and goes, oh no, I'm Dr. Sullivan. This is Dr. O'Connor. And he turns around the man in the wheelchair and that man is catatonic. He, I go, yikes, it's clear this guy is not writing the prescriptions. But the way he dramatically, he's like, no. I'm Dr. So-and-so. This is Deke O'Connor. I'm like, leave the poor man alone. Apparently in 1997, so two years before where we are now, he was thrown from his um, motorcycle, so he's now a patient himself. But like, why does he still need a neck brace? I guess it's just permanently he needs a neck brace. Is that normal for comatose patients? You know what? I'm crazy. Yes, it is. They can't hold themselves up because they're in a fucking coma. What's wrong with me? (laughs) I was about to be like, no, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) this is this is where our investigative stills (laughs) all right fail dr deke o'connor why'd they give such a cool name and then take it away from us i know i was like i was kind of hyped for dr deke o'connor and then he gets whipped around in his chair they're like this is dr o'connor yeah he probably can't help i'd be like i don't know why you guys need him because he probably can't help you out is this about the assault from 1991 or is it about the dui from 1994 (laughs) Is it about the fact that he got thrown off his motorcycle in 1997? Leave this man alone. This guy is at a chaotic life. Yeah, Dr. Deke probably partied. I mean, that sounds like a party building. I would probably move out of that building. Or in. Or, <laughs> or in. We'll say. So this is my question. If we Teresa slash Jasmine met Hampton Trill in the apartment building elevator, and she was coming back for an appointment, it might have been Dr. Deke, but I don't think so because it probably would have been I guess they didn't tell us how long Hampton has known Jasmine but I'm like if Dr. Deke is here who's in Dr. Deke's apartment I don't think it's anyone I think it's just a plot flaw yeah when we get to kind of the bottom of the prescription thing let's go back to that okay I have a further question but it's kind of connected to further down along the prescription drug plot line. Dun, dun. So this is kind of an annoying scene in that it was a waste of our time, I've decided, because it's just L basically making it about himself and asking this random doctor who I think is 
she's like a real actress. Her name her name's Dr. Elizabeth uh, Olivet in the show. She's in multiple episodes of SVU and in multiple Law and Order episodes as this character. Uh, I don't remember. I her. don't remember her at all. Well, all she is is taking away screen time from the amazing B.D. Wong, who's probably off filming Oz or the masterpiece we lot around this time. We'll get to him in time, and it'll be worth the wait. So Elle asks her uh, her opinion on amphetamines and starvation. <laughs> like, why would girls do something like that to themselves? And she's like, well, modeling's a quick way to power. They're the Greek goddesses of our time. Newsflash, it doesn't change. <laughs> 23 years later, we can tell you it's the same. And they still don't treat them nicely. It's kind of just happening. I didn't. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that Victoria's Secret would be problematic. I guess I thought people would just be smart enough to cut the shit, but no. No. He asks what the line is between dieting and anorexia. And she gives some pretty after-school specialty answers, being like, you know, binging and purging, being secretive. And she also gives them the advice, this is the important part of the scene, that oftentimes when parents try to fight their kids on eating and they like push them to eat the kids end up pushing back and they eat less because it's like a power struggle and it's a way for them to uh gain control in a chaotic world it's like well why don't you fix the world so these poor girls don't feel like they have to do shit like this i know and then she just she knows what he's really asking and she says you can't always be your daughter's best friend mm-hmm. dun 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 Back at the Stabler house, and Kathy is holding Maureen hostage at the dinner table with what looks to be a really gross plate of food, in all honesty. Yeah, I, I don't blame Maureen. I don't think Kathy's a good cook. Just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, on like, I digress a little bit, but I am a trash palate. I enjoy Me trash palate food. I have no Thank taste you. buds. I will eat anything. I don't enjoy, unless somebody made it or whatever, but... I really don't get a kick out of eating salmon or eating like, I mean, I like a steak, but I'm not like, ooh, look at this healthy meal. Ooh, asparagus. Mm, fuck my shit up. Like, no, I don't. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not delicious. Maybe get your kids some pad thai or some chicken wigs, something fun. She's already she's already trying to diet, which I know that's the problem. But still, it's like, stop trying to feed her shitty home cooked meals. Maybe she would like food more. Maybe some Kraft mac and cheese. OK, Kathy. Right. He walks in on basically the two men at the table and Maureen's pouting and being like, you're probably going to take her side. Elliot wisely heeds Dr. Elizabeth's advice and says to Maureen that she looks healthy enough. And he tells Kathy to get ready because they're going to go out for a manicotti's dinner. Oh, that sounded so good. I actually loved Kathy's face when he's like, have you eaten? And she's like, well, no, I was waiting for you. And he's like, it's manicotti night down at our local disgusting restaurant. She's like, I love it. So they run off and Maureen's like, I won't eat Italian either. <laughs> and Elliot goes, it's okay. You're not invited. And then Kathy's like, oh, burn. Like she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't even hide it. They dunk on Maureen and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're, they're like concerned Maureen has an eating disorder. And then they just dunk on her. And <laughs> Peace. They're like deuces, Maureen. We're out. Have your cold ass steak or no, bitch. We don't care. <laughs> Stabler's out. So Maureen's just like, ah, so we're, I guess we're left to assume that this was all really just rebellion and she actually isn't concerned about her weight. Fucking poser, Maureen. Her eating disorder is never mentioned again. It's a real problem for people, Maureen. Dun, dun. Anyway, <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> Pharmacy company or something. Because once again, I don't know what the fuck this is. This is so funny, Paige, because I wrote, this is some sort of virtual pharmacy question. <laughs> I was like, 
was like, what? Where are we? <laughs> so they're walking, they're being walked around by this like really excited guy showing them how great the business is. Again, these are cops. I don't know why you're acting like they're your friends. They're probably investigating a murder. I don't know what you think special victims unit means, but you're like way too chipper. Liv asks if they do any work with Dr. O'Connor and the guy says, yes, why? And he gets a little bit nervous looking. I don't know why he was so excited to talk to the police when he was doing illegals. He's like, why do you need to know about Dr. O'Connor? She goes, oh, nothing. It's just that he's eating through a feeding tube and dumping in a diaper. (laughs) That was a real laugh. I was just like, (laughs) dumping in a diaper? Writers. Writers. And again, this is still a victim. This man is a comatose vegetable. Or please <laughs> slap whoever talks about me like Put that. Put some respect <laughs> on Deke. The guy kind of looks at them like, oh boy, uh, I think uh, you, you know what I'm about to give you. So he kind of hands over like this big list that was of Dr. O'Connor's patients, quote unquote. And then he says, do we really need the attitude? You're committing prescription fraud. Like a lot of it. And that's what Liv goes. Okay, there's an entire list of like over 200 names, all different names, and they all had the same delivery address. What the fuck? And they're like, uh, what the fuck? And he goes, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess we need to fix our database. Oh, yeah. Oops. It's clear he knew this was going on. And really, and this business has no interest in transparency or right. checking that their doctors are really writing these prescriptions. Without giving it away, we do find out who's been doing this. But how did they do it? I actually don't know. That's what I now mean. That, it's like now very... that we say that, I'm like, oh, yes, the prescription fraud. And then I'm like, but I don't get how the system works. How were they able? It's like, first of all, how did they find out? How did this person find out that Dr. Deke had gone comatose? And it's like, and then how did that person gain access to, like, his files like it's like insane like how did this happen and they never explained it i thought someone was using deke o'connor's um identity to write the prescriptions and we never find out that we we never find out that that's the fact it's just that it's happening dun 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 (laughs) (laughs) we're back at the precinct and the red vines are back well we're in craigan's office and there are the red vines so Cragen's like, okay, we've got pills. This is a narcotics investigation. And Elliot and Olivia are like, whoa, 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 we're only following the narcotics to get to the attacker to find out what happened. So we don't need to include our friends at narcotics. Apparently narcotics kind of kind of show up and fuck shit up and like scare everybody. We're about to, <laughs> and- we're about to find out why. <laughs> and boy, do they ever. And so they don't want to involve narcotics because it would just make the witnesses all freaked out and it would shut them up. So Craig says he'll try to stall narcotics while they try to close the case. Dun dun! Privacy first, mail services. So this is like one of those P.O. box places. Cassidy and Much asked to see letterbox 732. And it's apparently owned by somebody named Bertrand Small. Fake name if I've ever heard it. The attendant does the thing where he's like, I don't know. I don't know who owns it. I never see anybody. Someone comes and picks up the mail. So the Cassidy's like, fine, we're just going to keep a cop out here and we're going to wait until Mr. 732 shows up. I thought that cut to the guy being like upset about this, but no, they immediately cut to another scene where they bring in the guy. So it's like it wasn't even a big deal. So they do find the guy. He's just a courier who is trying to do his job. He is sweating bullets. He just basically picks up the packages and delivers them to Morgan Talon Management, which is 
Nina Laszlo's agency. Oh, shit! Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Craigid's office, Ellen and Liv tell Craigid that now they can call narcotics, because apparently Nina Laszlo is getting a bunch of drugs all prescribed from not Dr. Deke. So again, I'm like, is it her? Is she Dr. Deke? I, they don't make that clear. They don't want us to know, but it's somehow she's involved in it. Cragen was just trying to read his golf digest. I know. He's always doing some fuck shit when they walk in. He's either like yelling at them to do their jobs or being like, what? I'm reading. I'm what I'm reading. I'm eating. So they're like, okay, because now we figured out that Nina Laszlo is like basically running an underground drug cartel, that we do need narcotics and we need a little bit of intimidation for the situation. And Cragen looks up at them knowingly and says, for intimidation. You'll need to talk to Joey Poole. <laughs> dun, dun. Dun, dun. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm thinking, who the fuck is Joey Poole? Joey Poole? This big, stone-cold Steve Austin motherfucker busts into Nina Laszlo's agency with his gun drawn. The gun is in the air and he's yelling, listen up, people. New York City Police Department, keep your hands where I can see him. Icon Joey Poole. Joey Pool. Joey, Joey Pool. And rabbit hole number two. <gasps> now, about my Joey Pool. About your Joey Pool. And I will say, I didn't clock how funny the Joey Pool scene was my first watch. And then you mentioned it when we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't really appreciate that. So upon my rewatch, I was like, oh my God, this is actually really funny. And I went to look up the actor who played Joey Pool, and he was not listed on IMDb. And I was like, all right, well, you're not going to show me Joey Poole and not give me Joey Poole. So I Google him. And thanks to the Law and Order wiki, I found out his name is actually actually Gary Clark. And I want to tell you a little bit about Gary. Yay! So he was born on March 24th, 1947 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He's a fellow New Englander. His parents are Benjamin and Marjorie Clark. His father owned a window company called Clark Glass. He was this really talented high school athlete. He played football in college at the University of Arizona. In 1970, he was drafted in the 11th round to the New Orleans Saints. And unfortunately, this NFL career is very short-lived due to an injury. He returns home to Connecticut to help his father with his glass business. But then he wanted to try his hand at acting. So his first film was in 1980. Um, It was called Hero at Large, and he had a small role as a cameraman. His biggest role ever is that of Private Steele in um, the 1985 George A. Romero film Day of the Dead. And he continued to play minor roles in films. He was in Three Men and a Baby, Big, and Married to the Mob. Oh my gosh, I've seen all of those, but I didn't know Joey Poole was in them. On a rewatch, you will see Joey Poole. He is typically more of like a background guy. He kind of jokes that he's usually the guy getting like blown up or shot at or like dies before the end of the movie, but... He meets his best friend, Stephen Barbin, at a watering hole called the Safari Pub that they both frequented in the mid-70s. Barbin was pumping gas and enrolled at Sacred Heart University. Um, Clark was just kind of starting his acting career, commuting from where he was living in Fairfield, Connecticut, to New York. And this grew to be like a really strong friendship. They had a lot in common. Um, They're both Jewish. They both really loved their, like, had really deep, connected relationships with their fathers. Um... And and Clark is best man at Barbin's wedding. So in 1979, um, Gary runs into an old high school classmate of his named Mika when she's at the hospital in Bridgeport, Connecticut. They're both watching over sick family members. She's watching over her aunt. 
He's watching out over his father who sustained a really bad injury on the job. And unfortunately, his father later dies, which is super devastating. He loves his dad. Gary and Mika have a very brief, passionate relationship. Um, it was never exclusive. Um, they eventually break up. He marries a woman named Carolyn. They have three children, and he names his son Benjamin after his father. They're living in Wilton, Connecticut, um, where our friend Mike is from. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we know where that is. I texted Mike. He's never heard of Gary Clark. I will get useless. I will get back to that. Right. <laughs> so December thirtieth, nineteen ninety-eight. Um, so about a year before he filmed this, he's sitting in the kitchen with his kids. They're now teenagers, and he receives a phone call, and it's a woman. And she says, are you sitting down right now? Yeah, like what? Her name's Nancy Sitterly. She's a social worker. And she says, do you know that you're adopted? And he's like, no, I'm not. You've got the wrong Gary. She's like, you're Gary Clark. You're born and raised in Connecticut. You went to college in Arizona. You had a brief NFL career. You're an actor. I've got the right Gary. And he's like, what are you talking about? So he asks for legal proof. They go through all these formalities. She's able to give him more information. In 1947, the year of his birth, his parents, who had been childless for 10 years, made arrangements with a couple in Bridgeport to adopt their newborn baby. And on November 30th, your birthday, 1948, this boy legally becomes Gary Clark. So the parents made private arrangements with family and friends. Um, Over the course of 19... So over the course of 19 years... Nine of their 13 children were placed for adoption. Gary was seventh of the 13 children. And the couple died in 1980s. And the kids went to families um, kind of throughout Connecticut. Some went to Catholic homes. Some went to Jewish homes. Most of them grew up within a few miles of each other. Um, He was raised Jewish. He's going to learn that his parents were Roman Catholic and Polish. Um, They'd moved to Bridgeport from Eastern Pennsylvania. So all this is a lot. He's processing all of this. And then all of a sudden he's like thinking about his friend, Steve Barbin. And he's like, you know what? Steve was adopted. I can, if he can handle this, I can handle this. And she goes, what's your friend's name? And he goes, Steve Barbin. And she goes, can I have his phone number? And he's like, is he my brother? And she's like, I can't, I can't tell you that. Steve Barbin is his brother. Oh my God. I am about to uh, switch gears. Ew. Remember Mika from earlier? No! That's his sister. No! No! So, no! No! Uh-huh. While he was dating Mika, Mika had this habit of asking her boyfriends if they were adopted because she knew this was a possibility. Yeah. Gary did not know he was adopted and... Yeah. So actually in this conversation with the social worker, Nancy, at some point, she's kind of telling him all these names and he goes, do you know about the Mika situation? And Nancy's like, I do. I talked to Mika earlier and she told me. This is really hard on Gary. He initially hesitates calling these other siblings. Like I said, there are 12 other siblings out there. A few of them were raised with the parents, but most of them were adopted he is one of two siblings who were never told they were adopted um so i would never want to see micah again i mean not I, if i were the two of them i'd be like yo i think it's better we don't see each other ever again that's gross they met up and had a conversation where they were like we didn't know we we couldn't have predicted this i respect I you you would respect me we'll move on 
Yeah. So Ugh. eventually he kind of gets to a place where he's feeling better about this family. He hosts a gathering, and I think this is the biggest gathering ever of the siblings at his house on Memorial Day in 1999. So then he figures out that Mika's, I think it's, I want to say it's Mika's, someone Mika knows is a producer for Dateline or works for Dateline. So they have this whole Dateline episode about like their family and it's in Stone Phillips, like is the host and they talk about their experiences. Um, this is kind of divisive among his siblings. Some of them support it. Some don't. It's just kind of a mix. And I think Steve Barbin is like, listen, Gary got the most fucked out of anybody in this situation. He is one of two that didn't know he was adopted. He found out that his parents weren't his real parents. He found out like he, it's he, sex, with his, he had sex with his sister. And Clark decided like that he was going to write a book. Eventually hands his friend and brother Steve Barbin a rough outline on his book and on the cover he wrote always my friend forever my brother <laughs> sorry I almost just cried there yeah that's like the best part of this really difficult story and um Gary passed away December 30th 2020 at the age of 73 and that is the real story of Gary Clark aka Joey Poole that is like a frigging movie. I mean, I know they did a Dateline episode on it, but isn't that wild? All that from wow. What if I had never sent you a voice memo and said I'm obsessed with Joey Poole? I went down a rabbit hole. Really quick, I should say thank you to IMDb, The Hartford Courant, Seacoast Online, and Wikipedia. I took all of that mostly from the Hartford Courant story, but. If you Google, if you Google Gary Clark adoption, you can read the whole story and it's pretty wild. There's more. It was, it was a lot. I mean, it's good that they did the Dateline thing because, um, that's a very big issue. You know what I mean? Like, that's a huge issue. They should not have been adopting those kids out within a radius of each other. You know what I mean? Like, that's insane. But yeah, Gary's parents never told him and his dad died before he found out. So many fuck ups. Uh huh. I was like, the sister? What? That, because like I was thinking that when he said, oh, his best friend was actually his brother. And I was like, oh, how terrible and fucked up would it be if Mika was, oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know what? If they got over it, I should too. Oh, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, no, I got to tell Paige about the incest. I famously hate incest. I know everyone <laughs> does, but like, I found a Wikipedia page in college and it was like a, comp- a compilation of like books, movies, TV shows that have like really gross incest plot lines. And I don't know why. It just upset me. I was like, we don't need to be writing about this. This is horrific. It's horrific in real life, too. Yep. <laughs> so, guys, always ask your partners, are they adopted? Were you adopted? Maybe you don't know. Maybe your parents didn't tell you. And it's worth getting a test now. You know what I mean? Or just like, I mean, look at, well, um. He wasn't related to me, but uh, a friend of Brittany and mine's from high school. His maternal aunt, great aunt, married my paternal great uncle. So we were like step cousins. Still weird. We still made fun of you. <laughs> yeah, we oh, constantly. I tell people that story now and they're like, well, that's not that weird. And then they kind of get all like, huh. And I'm like, no, we're not blood related. So technically it wasn't, but it's the moniker of family. It's weird. Yeah, we made it weird. So I'm sorry for 10 years ago. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It was more than 10 years ago, Brittany. It was like 15. Oh, <laughs> I know. That's the sad part. 
Ooh, child. <laughs> so. <laughs> Minimum way downtown. What? <laughs> so, Joey Poole busts on in. Nina Laszlo stops over and is like, hey, what the frig is going on here? And Joey Poole puts her basically in the cuffs immediately. Seamlessly. Liv, Elle, and for some reason, Munch saunter over as Nina is flipping her shit. And she starts yelling, Zoe, call Latham, call Watkins now. I would also like to mention she's killing it in the red dress she's wearing. She looks beautiful. And so they, they're like, listen, you can tell us what we want to know and we'll take you out the back or we'll just march you out the front and let everyone see you get uh, paraded around. And like a good New Yorker with a reputation, she says, I'll go out the back, please. Yes. So she lets them know that she does supply the speed to her models, but she just does it to keep them happy. She just doesn't want them to leave. Yeah, if you raise a stink, they'll, they'll go to another agency. You know what? I probably would be one of those models. I'd be like, Nina, you give me my you give me my drugs. drugs. Give me my skinny drugs, Nina. I'm <laughs> leaving. I'm going to Barbizon down the street. <laughs> and like how she victim blamed. She's like, if you don't give those 16-year-old girls their drugs, they will quit on you. They will quit, even though it seems like they have no power in this situation at all. So Liv asked Jazz, uh, asks if Jasmine and Vanessa raised a fuss and that's why they were attacked. And Nina gets kind of awkward and says that Carlo, Carlo Parisi has a private collection of Polaroids with himself and other models. That kind of was random, I'm realizing. She kind of like, I guess she realized the jig was up and she's like, oh yeah, I thought about it later and he probably killed them because he's got this private collection of Polaroids. She spills all and he forced Jasmine to SSD and then took some photos and then kicked her out of the shoot. I didn't realize that all happened on the same day. I thought that the essing, the well, they called it the Lewinskying, which is rude. It sounded better when I said it. So I thought the essing of the D happened like maybe a couple days before. And then when he did kick her out of the shoot, that she was like, hey, what the fuck? I thought that was the timeline. That would make more sense. I have an issue with the timeline, but whatever. I know the timeline. And again, who the fuck was pretending to be Dr. O'Connor? So Nina implies, or she knows, that apparently Jasmine somehow got a hold of Carlo's collection of Polaroids, and she hauled off with them at the shoot. So again, timeline's weird, because it's like, did the S and of the D happen first, or was it all the same day, and then she happened to find his Polaroid box? Yeah. Like the same day? I'm, this timeline does not make sense to me. Whatever. But apparently Jasmine stole the Polaroids and had the intention of ruining his career. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. It's Thursday. So Briscoe and Green throw a bag with a claw hammer on Liv's desk and they acquired it after four hours of dumpster diving. Nine dumpsters and all. And then Liv says that they're about to go pick up Carlo Parisi to see if they can find the collection of Polaroids. You know, we're going to go rough up Carlo Parisi. Finally. Finally. So they go to arrest him. He says a whole bunch of bullshit that I didn't apparently didn't bother writing down because I don't think it leads anywhere. Is that true? Uh, He told them they weren't invited. Oh, like I said. (laughs) And Elliot's like, they're going to either be. Oh, God, you probably wrote it down. I forget what he said. Well, so he does that thing that they do in these episodes where they kind of lay out what most likely happened. So Elliot leads in to Carlo and he goes here's what I think happened Carlo realized the photos are gone he fights Jasmine she refuses to give them back things get heated 
Carlos scoffs that he didn't murder anyone, and Liv says, well, how about statutory rape? You made Jasmine sit for the oral exams. And then Carlos scoffs, ridiculous. It's like, okay. Brittany scoffs, writing. They start searching for the Polaroids, which they do not find, but what they do find is a nifty little photo album, and it has pictures of Carlo and Miss Deborah Luttrell, pre-sunglasses, they're engaged and looking very happy, and they also find out that she is his business partner. Parting note, apparently there was a stain on Jasmine's dress, so they were going to get a DNA from Carlo, and I'm like, wow, they are really trying to Monica Lewinsky this one. Mm -hmm. Carlo's sloppy. So back at the station, uh, Liv and Elle are interrogating Deborah, who is still in her sunglasses, but not for much longer. Mm -hmm. And Elle asks Deborah how she knew that Jasmine and Vanessa went to Hamilton Trill's book release party, and Deborah says that the girls must have mentioned it in passing. She gives them pretty much nothing. And Olivia and Elliot leave the room to regroup. And Olivia, in my opinion, has the brilliant idea to have Munch bring Carlo out to the middle of the room, sit him down, and then he's going to tell Carlo that Deborah rolled on him. They're going to go back in the room and tell Deborah that Carlo rolled on her and see. What comes out? So they go back into the room. They grab Deborah. They're like, mm, yep, Carla rolled on you. We just need to fring- fingerprint you. Uh, we know all the stuff you did. They bring her out. She and Carlo just start spitting venom at each other. And they. She literally spits on Carla. Yes. Spitting venom and actual spit. She's like, you bastard. <laughs> she spits on him. And then Carla goes, you should have kept your bloody mouth shut. So they're hauled away from each other and i was like so you literally pulled her from one interrogation room to the other but i think this is supposed to be like the fingerprinting room or something i don't know now she's in the actual like windowless uh two-way mirror room uh she's ready to spill all the tea and the best tea we get is that she's like his name isn't even carlo parisi he was carl parsley when i met him she was a famous model he was Carl Carl Parsley. He was electronics photographer for like something like Radio Shack. So I'm like, why the fuck did you meet him? Were you walking in to buy yourself a new landline? Then she started getting Mr. Parsley all his jobs, essentially. Yeah, she was doing Vogue. She was doing Vanity Fair. And she said, if you want me, you have to hire Carlo, too. So they were dating and they built this business together. She starts going in on Benson about being beautiful. She's like, you don't understand, detective. Once beauty is gone, no one loves you anymore. And then she removes her sunglasses, finally. Yes. And she reveals that her eye socket um, on her right eye. Okay, I don't want to be rude here, but it wasn't a terribly bad, just, you know. It, I mean, I'm sure it was bad, but it, it was kind of like. She would have still been beautiful after. I, I don't know. It's It just looks like, I don't know even how to describe, like, describe. Like, I don't know what that injury is. It's like her, the, her orbit, you know, the eye socket, the orbital uh, bone is permanently bruised or something. And then her eye has like cataracts in it now. It does not look like a real injury. I'm not like, I don't, I'm not a doctor. That does not look like a real healed injury to me. That looks like it just happened. Right. And it was supposed to be probably, I mean, if she was supposed to be a younger model when it happened, it would have been like at least 10 years before. Whether looking at her eye and the damage, uh, Liv immediately realizes and she goes, the measuring man. So if we remember, Deborah was a victim of the measuring man before. I'm like, fucking duh, Olivia. You watched her testify and you forgot that her eyes busted from the measuring man? 
You remembered that this poor woman that you accost while you're investigating a crime. So you remember that she testified, but you forgot that she had like her right eye busted open. Good point. Maybe she was wearing her sunglasses that whole time. And that's how Liv was like, hey, you're the weird girl who wears sunglasses. (laughs) No, that's actually maybe that's what happened. Deborah says, yes, yes, this was, you know, this was that after she was injured. um, Everyone stopped wanting to work with her. Friends abandoned her and subsequently Carlo abandoned her, too. Like they still had the business together and they remained friends, but he like left her. And I don't actually know if he left her because of that or if it was like before that. Um, I think it's kind of fucked up. Yeah, he was probably just a cheater. Monday night, night of the shoot. After Jasmine gets kicked off and Teresa leaves with her, they go to Hampton Trills. And I think from there, Deborah got wind of these Polaroids. I think Jasmine called her and told her to come meet her. They called her, had her come to the party. They told her about the Polaroids, but said they didn't have them. And she said, "Okay, well, we can meet at another place. How about we meet in my car? So they meet her in her car. They show her the Polaroids. And she loses her ever-loving mind. She said that some of the people in those Polaroids were women that she'd worked with and been friends with for years. So it was like, on top of finding all this out of Jasmine, she goes, the last bit of dignity I had and this little bitch had to take it from me. So instead of, you know, doing the mature thing and finding Carlo and removing his nuts with the other end of the claw hammer, she turns the claw hammer first on Jasmine. And then Vanessa starts screaming and then she hits Vanessa with the hammer. Vanessa starts convulsing and Vanessa dies. Teresa is very injured but alive and she calls Carlo allegedly to help clean up her mess. So she claims it was Carlo's idea to um, perpetrate the assault with the end of the hammer to make it look like rape never seemed to throw them off in any which way they were immediately very focused on the drugs the the assault with the hammer is almost like an afterthought it was kind of like one of those things where it was like okay we have to involve some type of sex crime so that they could investigate it she did all that and car allegedly she took um teresa to the hospital and dropped her off she said i don't know what carla did with vanessa but he tossed vanessa in a dumpster Um, She loses her shit. She's crying. And then all of a sudden, cool as a cucumber, she smooths her hair, Mm. puts her sunglasses back on, and then says a line that kind of had nothing to do with anything. She's like, oh, I just, it was so awful. I blacked out. I wish it hadn't happened. Then she goes, (gasps) slicks her hair back, puts the sunglasses back on. But you can't turn back time, can you? And I was like, damn, Deborah, right there. You got me right back. Like Like, if I were a defense attorney and she was trying to convince me, like, you got to represent me. And she told me that whole thing. That last part, I would have been like, God damn it, Deborah, you're smooth. All right, I'll defend I'm in. you. I know. Poor Deborah, who I'm like 99% on her side, except for where she murdered those two girls at the end. They had their confession. They now know that Carlo was, in fact, involved. Uh, involved. They're exiting Liv sees Munch, and she asks how Jasmine's doing. And Munch looks at her and goes, She didn't make it. It's, I feel like, kind of the first episode where you're kind of like oh that's it there's no real resolution both the girls died and these two assholes 
although they're going to jail, they both get to live, you know? And it's basically because of all these adults that these two girls are dead. I was wondering if Jasmine, I feels like Deborah thought Jasmine was almost trying to get back at her or like was just using her to fuck up Carlo when she like told her about the Polaroids. But I would argue that Jasmine was, you know, in part trying to take down Carlo, but also thinking, well, I like Deborah. Deborah's been always nice to me. This is her business, too. I want her to know what Carlo's doing, because if there's anything she could do to save herself. Like, I would, I was thinking that Jasmine was probably trying to tell her to be good, not to, it seems like Deborah took it as, like, this little bitch is trying to rub it in my face, and it's like, uh, no, not really. It's most likely Jasmine had no idea that Deborah and Carlo were ever involved romantically. That's true. So, I, I think that's probably fair. I would actually like to compliment this episode on Jasmine slash Teresa is the first, like, imperfect victim mm. i'm not calling steven tanzik like a imperfect victim he was just not a good victim he there wasn't like any it was like it was black and white um but Teresa misused substances and i i think in some scenarios people would consider her like an imperfect victim and this is kind of the first time we get an imperfect victim where it's like it's not okay what happened to her either way my only other issue is, like, like who the fuck was pretending to be Dr. O'Connor? I have no idea. What? Yeah. <sighs> I think that was just unclear. Yeah, no, that was, that was bad. I was like, I don't understand who's writing the prescriptions. It's not Deke. I have a funny anecdote to wrap up the episode. Yay! We can call this segment, These Are Your Stories. So, I reached out to our friend Mike today. And I asked him if he'd ever heard of Gary Clark because I was curious. It said he was like living in Wilton and I think it's kind of a small town. So I didn't know if Mike had ever heard of him. So I'm like, Mike, have you ever heard of Gary Clark? So he says his big, the big name from Wilton was this person who I will tell you off Mike. And it's a male actor who was in like a big name TV show and in a big movie. So then our, my friend Mike is like, oh. I made out with this actor's daughter. And I was like, oh, shit, you did? No way. So we, I was just like, how did that happen? He's like, oh, we used to run in the same circles, specifically right after college. And then he said, the winds of alcohol and affection would blow. I love you, Mike. Mike. <laughs> so I then, he said, and I feel like you've heard the story of her. And so I'm like, I don't think so. So was making out with this actor's daughter at a party one time her father came up in a casual conversation and he goes does your father think you're a good kisser (laughs) (laughs) mike said that was the end of the night (laughs) oh my god (laughs) i don't know if i'd be mad if someone asked me that it's obviously a joke (laughs) Well, I still love I think that's hilarious. Once we stop recording, I'll tell you the actor's name. I just feel like Mike would be like, wow, you blew up his name, who his daughter is, and our friend. I'm very excited to learn because I'm like, who is this poor girl who deserves better? (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Mike. Well, guys, whoever's out there listening, that was uh, the conclusion of the third episode of not only SVU, but the Elite Squad pod. I'm sorry I sounded 
nasally and congestive I'm sorry that that's not a word. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Next time we will be talking about SVU, I'm Googling as I speak, season one, oh, episode, episode four. four, and it's called Hysteria. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will be back next time with a new episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye.